Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on Sunday, January 12, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. This evening, we're talking with Rudy Barnes, a lawyer, a U.S. Army colonel, a Methodist church pastor, and a book author. Rudy earned a B.A. in political science in 1964 at the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina. He went on to earn a law degree at the University of South Carolina and then a Master's of Public Administration. And he graduated from the U.S. Army War College in 1992. Rudy practiced law as both a civilian and in the military as a Judge Advocate General, focusing on special operations in the U.S. Army. From 2000 to 2012, Rudy was a pastor at St. John Methodist Church in Columbia, South Carolina. Rudy published numerous articles in military journals, and he authored the book Military Legitimacy, Might and Right in the New Millennium. It's interesting that he published this book in 1996 because many of the issues he identified over 20 years ago are still very relevant in today's political environment. Rudy also blogs consistently at a site called Religion, Legitimacy, and Politics at www.religionlegitimacyandpolitics.com. All one word, no spaces or hyphens, and it's spelled just how it sounds. Religionlegitimacyandpolitics.com. So, Rudy, uh, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dan, for having me. I'm looking forward to our discussion this evening. Great. Well, uh, with all the things you've done in your life, and I tried to touch on most of them, I um, I think I, 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 I was going to ask if, you, if there's anything left in your bucket list, but I think I forgot to mention that you also were involved a little bit in politics with the uh, American oh, yeah. Party. I've, over the years, I've, I've done that. I was a... Uh, owned Columbia City Council for two terms, and later on uh, in life, I, I actually ran, ran for Congress thanks to uh, urging on by uh, the fellow you know, Jim Rex, uh, to promote the idea of a third, the need for a third party, which I am absolutely convinced we need. Uh, but I have to tell you something, Dan. Mm-hmm. I'm an old guy. I'm over 70 years old. I'm right in there with Bernie Sanders and, and Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. But I still haven't decided what I want to be when I grow up. So. <laughs> well, I've, I think I'm part of that same club. I just turned 60 myself, so I'm, I'm, I'm on that same track. Yeah, but I've enjoyed doing those things that, that uh, you mentioned earlier. They've really given me a, a very broad perspective of, of life, different things that we'll talk about here this evening. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, well... Um, now, I, I was uh, perusing around your writings. Uh, I couldn't read everything because you have a blog that you uh, blog very consistently with. Uh, I, I, I'm seeing a, a rate of about one a week uh, for the past several years. But one of the themes that I hit upon in this blog quite consistently is that you you write this and you say, quote, Jesus was sacrificed on the altar of partisan politics. So yeah. um, could you walk us through what you mean by that statement? of all, recognize that as a metaphor. Uh, it's, it's what it is, and I think it's a metaphor that illustrates how Christianity has become hopelessly enmeshed in America's polarized partisan politics. Uh, and, and they are polarized. Uh, American voters, uh, most all of them, I say most all of them, actually only I'd say 80% of American voters consider themselves members of one or the other two parties, that bipolar uh, partisan process that we have in this country. And uh, because it is polarized, uh, they're pretty much, those people are pretty much stuck with those parties, but that 80% divided up that way, they leaves 20% approximately of independent voters, most of whom are centrist, I believe, from following the various polls that I've I've tried to keep up with. And I do believe that those centrist independents, like myself, are going to make the difference in the upcoming election in 2020. Just what that'll be, we won't know until we have the uh, Democratic nominee in place. Until that comes, uh, it's very difficult to say. But what, what I'm trying to illustrate is that Christianity is very much involved in this process. And and I would say this, too. Uh, race is a very significant factor. Whether we like it or not, uh, mm-hmm. 
within Christianity, uh, most churches remain racially divided. Sunday morning is still the most segregated time of the week, and uh, most Republicans are white, and most Democrats are black. And while white evangelicals are the most enthusiastic supporters of Trump and his Republican Party, most white Christians vote Republican. Mm -hmm. I'm talking primarily red states like South Carolina, that's my experience, has mm -hmm. been. But what's most amazing, Dan, is that in most mainline Protestant churches, pastors avoid mixing religion and politics. This is absolutely nuts. Mm -hmm. We could talk about separation of church and state. If you like to, I can go into that a little bit. But the idea that that we should avoid talking about moral issues in the church, moral issues that relate to our politics, is absolutely absurd. It basically strips our religion of any moral relevance when you're in a democracy such as the one we have. So, you know, my... My thing is, my concern is right now, or observation is, that the church itself is losing relevance, and you may well have seen the same uh, polls that I've seen, that an increasing number of people leaving the church or failing to join the church, called nuns or the spiritual but not religious, the church is losing ground across the board, and I think a lot of that has to do with its irrelevance in the, the moral side of politics. Mm -hmm. Well, isn't there, uh, d just to digress in this a little bit, isn't there, and I may be wrong, so correct me, but I thought there was some sort of a uh, tax code that said that if, if churches are uh, involved in, in political discussions or involved in influencing the parishioners in a, in a political way that they would lose their tax status, I may be completely yeah. wrong it, about it, that, but. There are certain rules. One, if they if they promote a particular candidate or even a particular party, uh, that can violate the rules of for being a nonprofit religious organization. They could they could conceivably lose their status, tax status. But but that that does not mean that they can't discuss moral issues related to politics, including what kind of moral standards we ought to have for the candidates that we elect to high office. That is the essence of our faith, in my view. There's nothing more important in our faith than in who we choose to be our leaders. And, you know, we're fortunate we live in a democracy because that's only been the last few hundred years that uh, democracy has even been relevant to this standpoint of religious morality. Mm -hmm. uh, back going before that, we've had the divine right by, supposedly by God through kings and whatnot, inheritance. Uh, but now, people, we individually, uh, are masters of our own destiny through this process called democracy. And the idea that we shouldn't consider the moral issues involved because they might upset people, and that's essentially why the church wants to avoid it. Well, As I understand, the church wants to be popular in talking politics in church. Uh, is not a popular thing to do, at least not in these parts. Yeah, yeah. So the um, so that was actually kind of dovetailing into my next question because you know you, you talk about partisan politics. Are, do you think that um, partisan politics has evolved because of the lack of moral discussions within our churches or moral discussions within our society in general, or is it or is that just part of the problem? You think? I think that's just part of it. It's very, obviously very complex. I don't think there's any simple explanation, but <clears throat> the, the polarized partisan politics, you know, we've, we've had partisan politics forever uh, in this country, but they're being so polarized is a rather new phenomenon. And uh, I remember it was only 30 years ago thereabouts where both parties had people who could cross that uh, center aisle and work out compromises with those on the other side. That was the norm. It wasn't the exception, it was the norm. So really, we need to ask ourselves what's happened in the last 30 years uh, that has eliminated that aspect of our politics. Mm -hmm. You have both parties polarized, 
very little willingness to, to compromise on issues and a great deal of hostility, which can only harm democracy and ultimately bring it down. I remember Edmund Burke once said a long time ago, back in the uh, 18th century, told us Americans that, uh, folks, you don't know, but you're going to, with your democracy, you're going to forge your own shackles. Hmm. And he was right on it. And more recently, one of my favorite characters, Pogo, said, oops, we've met the enemy and it's us. Yeah. And in democracy, that's the way it is. It's a shame. But, but if we don't get our act together, uh, we could lose this, this wonderful uh, opportunity and blessing that we call democracy. I'm very, I'm very much concerned about that. Then. So the, um, uh, you, you talk about the, the failing of the Church to um, involve moral, uh, politically-based moral discussions within, um, within the Church itself. So what can they do? Because you said that you know, the churches are they're losing membership, and there's, I'm sure there's multiple reasons for that. But um, what can the church do at this point to, to fix that? I think there's only one thing to do, and who knows where it'll take us, and that is for the church to go back to, this, uh, to the teachings of this man Jesus over 2,000 years ago and to try to adapt those teachings, and it takes some adaption, it takes some interpretation and adaption, to adapt those teachings to our time and place today, democracy. It was no democracy when Jesus was teaching. Uh, no human rights, democracy, and those kinds of issues that we've grown accustomed to considering these days. But most certainly his teachings, the moral aspects of his teachings, uh, are the same issues that we need to be uh, it's the same moral standards that we need to be using in connection with our democracy today. Uh, let's get to the most important one, I think, and it's for starters here, is this, essentially this altruism, which is you find in the greatest commandment, which to me is at the heart of this, this whole thing, you know, religion and politics, the greatest commandment to love God and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And when we speak of our neighbors, we're not just talking about the folks next door, the folks we like, who look like us, believe like we do. We're talking about everybody. Uh, that's the story of the Good Samaritan. When, as you may recall, the, uh, that Samaritan, Samaritans being detested by Jews, stopped to help a Jew, a wounded Jew, alongside the road. That's how Jesus answers the question, who is my neighbor, with that particular story. But when you look at the parties today, especially the Republican Party, uh, you don't, see, and they all, most all of them claim to be Christians, but you don't see any evidence of that understanding of neighbor at all. So immigrants, uh, uh, those of other religions, are the other mm -hmm. for them, and us versus them political environment. We've got to get over that somehow. And if we go back to the teachings of Jesus, we can do that. But the church has not indicated any willingness to do that. It's too too focused on its its uh, mystical doctrines that that insist upon exclusivist belief in Jesus as a divine being. And as long as that's the focus, and we don't pay any attention to his moral teachings, uh, the church is doomed to die, in my view. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of a Jeffersonian in, in one aspect, Dan. You may recall, I don't know if you're familiar with the Jefferson Bible, but Thomas Jefferson was deeply involved in these very issues we're talking about now. And he put together a Jefferson Bible on the moral teachings of Jesus. And he once said that he thought the moral teachings of Jesus were the sub most sublime moral code ever developed by man. Hmm. You know, the church has never thought much of Thomas Jefferson uh, because he wasn't a conventional Christian, Orthodox Christian. But I, I agree with his assessment of the teachings of Jesus and wonder why in the world the Church can't go back and grasp that concept and promote it. Well, I think uh, well, one of the problems I see these days, though, is that, is that uh, and it's just, you know, you know a lot more about this than me, but one of the things I personally see is this thing called the prosperity gospel that's that's preached a lot, oh, yeah. and it, it's, it's, it's the legitimacy of material wealth, which is 
you know, from my limited understanding of, of the Bible and, and the teaches the teachings of Jesus as well as other religious leaders that um, materialism is to be um, is to be avoided. Well, not necessarily avoided, but it's not it's not the center of your motivation or your or your moral construct. Oh, but the prosperity gospel has deep roots in uh, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, you know, it, it's there very clearly. Uh, the Mosaic Law, and Moses himself said, we find in the uh, in the Bible, said that those who obey God's law, Mosaic Law, all 600-some-odd laws there that are there, uh, will be rewarded. God will reward you people who obey the law. Those who disobey will be punished by God. That was the essence of at least a good portion of the Jewish belief at the time of Jesus. And Jesus, his teachings disabused the Jews that that was the case, that that uh, obedience to the law was somehow the standard of righteousness of God, and that I mentioned a little earlier that it, it should be love over law that prevailed. Uh, and that that's something that we need to to restore, I think, in this country. We, we have become, in some ways, about as legalistic as the Jews of Jesus' day in, mm-hmm. in the, the seeing the importance or believing in the importance of our law. You probably can recall, as I do, some politicians who were doing things, like I remember, I think, Bill Clinton was trying to raise some money outside a Buddhist temple well back, uh, and, and some reporter asked him, he said, uh, President Clinton, don't you think that, that what you're doing is immoral? And Clinton's response was, I had my lawyers check it out, and we're not violating any law. And that was the end of the question. I wow. Mean, yeah. Was there no follow-up question that, hey, well, is mora- morality is something that goes beyond the law, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Yeah. That's what Jesus dealt with, but I'm not sure that we can we can handle that today. What do you think uh, in some—one of the things that I fear is um, it might be too late in some respects to awaken America to its moral failures because um, the, the roots, uh, especially you know, when, you're, when we're talking about the roots of discontent or, or the, the, the dichotomy or, or the duopoly, the, the um, partisan politics that's practiced, these roots are very deep. It's been going on for quite some time, and— I sometimes wonder that even if we suffered, you know, a, a large catastrophe that is a direct result of our, um, um, dare I say, immoral behavior or, or an amoralistic uh, type of behavior, that I still, I, I, I sometimes wonder if it may be too late that people still wouldn't recognize it for what it is. Well, you might be right, and that's something I have often thought about myself, and I'm not, I'm not sure, except that I think. That I'm not going to write off humanity as being hopeless, even though I think the depravity of human nature is a reality that we've got to deal with. But I, I, I feel that there is the opportunity, given the right stimulus, and, and I think it would take a, 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 a stimulus that would cause great discomfort to a majority of American citizens, uh, much like uh, the Great Depression of, followed 1929. You remember in those years that followed, uh, a majority of Americans came to, to uh, suffer in their own ways uh, the deprivations of that uh, economic crisis. And America became a different country, uh, I think, because of that. You, some people might argue, no, no, that wasn't the cause, but I think it was. It, it's, a, it's kind of an empathy that came out of that personal, the shared experience of suffering. Mm-hmm. Maybe World War II had something to do with it, too, but the period that followed the Depression and World War II was the clearly, in my mind, looking back at this country, that was the high point of America's moral development yeah. there, right up through maybe the 1970s or 80s when things started going morally downhill. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I'm not giving up the hope, but I think the Church has, to a large degree, lost its credibility and legitimacy. And it's going to be tough for it to get it back, but I think it will take something of a national uh, crisis, if you mm-hmm. will, 
for that to happen. I wish it were not that way, but uh, I think it might be. Otherwise, you know, we are a materialistic, hedonistic culture. That's the opposite of the kind of altruistic uh, culture that we need to be. Yeah. And yeah. to shift gears in cultures, our cultural values will take some kind of a dramatic, I think, uh, stimulus there to the public. Yeah, well, I think part of this is is not so much uh, a fault of, uh, and this is just me speaking, but not necessarily a fault of democracy, but a, perhaps a, a shortcoming of of um, capitalism that, um, you know, it, it's been unrestrained and it looks to optimize everything. And, and uh, whereas democracy might respond to uh, uh, moralistic teachings, capitalism only responds to um, profit, money. Basically, so it's. Um, I think I think we're in at a time in history where we're going to see capitalism. Uh, how would you say it? Uh, it's going to have to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think the church will change it, but and I don't think we'll see another Karl Marx come along. Right. But I do think we'll have to see the spirit of altruism related to. Uh, uh, Capitalism, yeah, more so than it has been in the in the past. Remember Anne Rand, mm-hmm. the uh, Atlas Shrugged, yeah. back nineteen fifties, sixties. She represents the, you might say, the religion of Wall Street, yeah. and that is uh, just look after yourself. The most important thing is finding your own uh, material happiness and success, and you don't need to worry about anybody else. They can take care of themselves. Yeah. That that was really the the theory that she advocated, and that is still very predominant, I think, on Wall Street. And one of the things that I've noticed it's really an ironic sort of thing that that uh, Trump support is made up of a very unlikely coalition of what I call the mindless masses—people that aren't very much interested in doing what's right, but mindless masses and those those folks who are tied into big money in this country. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, I like to call them Wall Street, but that's an oversimplification. Sure. But we've got to, to do something with this concept of capitalism to make it more responsive to the needs of, of uh, everyone. And that phrase, I'm sure you've heard it used, I, I like to use it myself, providing for the common good. That should be an absolute essential objective yeah. of government. And it, all the other identity group politics need to be balanced with that, providing for the common good. That's altruism in political terms. Yeah. And we, yeah. we can't get there, we're in big trouble. Well, it's. Um, I, I think there's been attempts at this in the past, you know, the antitrust laws and uh, the unionization of workers and so on. We've we've been <clears throat> sort of clawing ourselves, uh, to, and to some degree, we've been clawing ourselves toward that direction. But uh, we suffer setbacks. I think uh, the recent um, couple decades, uh, we've experienced some setbacks where people start winding back the uh, the, the regulations. Um, I think when when Trump took office, um, he had a uh, uh, I don't know if he ever was ever to achieve this objective, but he said for every regulation, for every new regulation we make, we want to uh, delete two other ones, and that may have been an attempt to you know simplify law. And I'm not you know accusing him of anything other than perhaps just wanting to simplify things, but um, that could have the the effect, the inadvertent effect of unleashing uh, capitalism, which uh, when left unleashed and not regulated at all, in my opinion, it, it starts to slip into an oligarchy. Well, absolutely. I mean, we all have to agree. If we, You don't have to be a wizard, an economic wizard, to understand that capitalism is based on ambition and greed. I mean, it, it, that's what, it, what drives it. And if those aren't controlled with some kind of government regulation, then, well, I don't have to tell you what comes out of that. We can see examples of it throughout our history. We've had the robber barons in the 19th century and all, you know, many examples of, yeah. of how yeah. that can undermine uh, a healthy uh, democracy. Yeah. So yeah. 
hopefully we can we can move in that direction. But the question is, how much and what is the role of well the role of religion in providing this this uh, value of altruism and providing for the common good? I think is very important. Uh, most people don't think about that as religious, but I do because it fits with that. Again, the greatest commandment. That's the essence of what it says. It, that's the way we love our neighbors as we love ourselves. That's the way we do it in democracy. So with is, the... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no I'll go, you go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it's trying to build on that point there, and, and, and this sort of, pardon the expression, playing devil's advocate here, but we've, we've heard, you know, um, the prosperity gospel being preached uh, for a very long time now, and so <clears throat> if someone were to, say, advocate for a return to... a uh, uh, Perhaps a more orthodox interpretation of Jesus's che- of, of Jesus's teachings, um, it, and I'm, I'm using Jesus more metaphorically. I mean, it, it, um, many of the religious leaders uh, throughout history, uh, the Prophet Muhammad, and and so on, uh, have these teachings that that, that um, have altruism at their core. And so, aren't you afraid though that if we try to return to those types of teachings, that people will say, "Well, we've been there, we've done that," because their minds are already polluted with this prosperity gospel, and they'll think, well, we tried religion, that didn't work. And what you're really advocating for is saying, no, it's not so much religion, it's really the moral code behind the religion that really hasn't well, been tried yeah. out. I, I think uh, that's one of the first things I've really developed, uh, examined myself closely in this thing of religion and politics. Uh, I think it's important that we understand that there are two very basic divisions of components of religion. Mystical beliefs, uh, usually in God or that power beyond all powers, and then moral standards. And the two uh, are related, most certainly in the greatest commandment we have, you know, the two parts of that command is to love God, which is most question, no question about it, is mystical, and then to love your neighbor as yourself, which is very moral. I mean, it's pretty obviously moral. So what I have tried to do, and this is what Thomas Jefferson did to the chagrin of the church, he said, let's just move these mystical beliefs that we all have differences on off to the side. Uh, Because I think Jefferson said, "If if it doesn't break my arm or pick my pocket, it doesn't deserve public discussion. Just be very personal about it. Whereas moral principles, moral imperatives, very definitely uh, relate to our relationships, uh, our political life and relationships with each other. Uh, that that we've never, anyone who would say, well, we've tried it and it didn't work, I would, I would say, tell me when we tried it, because I must have missed that. Mm-hmm. And I'm a bit of a student of history, but I don't believe we've ever really tried that. Other than, perhaps, as we mentioned, the Depression, when most of, most Americans uh, were suffering in one way or the other, economically. And uh, we came up with socialist-type policies that were necessary at the time to correct uh, the inequities uh, that had existed up to that time through the Roaring Twenties. Uh, and, of course, we've done some backsliding ever since. And, and by the way, I should mention... Don't don't confuse me with being a socialist. I am a, a libertarian fundamentally. I believe that that freedom is the greatest gift, political freedom that we have. But we can't deny the need for government. And the more people we have, and the more complicated the world becomes, the more government we need just to survive. So I, I, I'm speaking as a libertarian, but I know as I talk about the need to provide for the common good. Some people say, oh, you're just an old socialist. Well, I don't consider myself that at all. Yeah. Well, that label and is they, thrown around a lot, uh, uh, very much unfairly, but it's, it's, part of the, um, it's, it's, it's part of the partisan politics. Anytime somebody says something that's not uh, strictly um, uh, capitalistic, then you become a socialist, and that's, um, that's, right. that's, right. that's a false we've dichotomy. Over, we've got to get over that and uh, come to what we call in, uh, at least I emphasize, in religion as a common word of faith, that being the greatest commandment, and it is. The greatest commandment uh, is found in the Hebrew Bible 
It was taught by Jesus, and a very large group of Islamic scholars have offered it to the Christians as a common word of faith. It's a common word of faith. Loving others, altruism, is a common word of faith. It's not limited to the Christian religion at all. And if we could ever come around to seeing it that way and, and focusing on how to apply it to our politics, which is difficult. It's, it's a simple concept, but to apply it to the complex political issues that we have. For instance, you know, law enforcement, using lethal force in law enforcement and using uh, having the military use lethal force. It's hard to square that with loving others. But if you think about it, and it's something I've spent some time thinking about, you know, if if we're going to truly love others, then we've got to be prepared to protect them from those who would do them harm. And there's no way to avoid the need of law enforcement, lethal force, and a military at the national level to do that. Tough, In other words, we've got tough issues, but we need to start with some kind of a general principle. And I think that greatest commandment, and altruism is the beginning point, and I don't think we've ever really done that in this country. Really seriously done that. Mm-hmm. Good. Well, I've. Uh, I think this is a good time to take a quick break here because when we come back from the break, I'm going to want to expand on that point a little bit more. We've been talking with Rudy Barnes, lawyer, Army Colonel, Methodist minister, and author. We'll be back after a short break. The two-party system that we've got is broken. The choices are awful. All we see is lies, cheating, deceit. You could say it about both parties. Neither one really stands for anything except acquiring and exercising power. The idea was to give the power to the people or the people who've given the power away. And that's where the system broke. Government and our political system was designed to be malleable. You know, not rigid, not ossified, not always gridlocked. Absolute power does corrupt, absolutely, and that's why the founders set the system up to avoid having concentrated power in the executive and in the national branch. The founding documents are the best, it's the best government so far that we've come up with. Um, we're just not doing it. You know, it's tribalism, basically. If, if you're not on my tribe, then you're a bad person. You could say the sky is blue, and I'm going to say, no, it's green. I think it's right out of a 1930s era playbook where if you can divide people, make them feel like something's being taken from them, probably pays well for them to make sure that everybody's divided because, in essence, it keeps them in office, it keeps them in power, it keeps them employed. The amount of money that's involved in politics, it is crazy. And Obama's a smart guy, but not even he could, uh, he wasn't going to do it either. And I was like, okay, that's it. If he can't do it, it's not going to happen because uh, that's when I knew that the uh, the lobbyists and the corporate interests, uh, the outside private interests that really have a hand in making sure that our political system doesn't work, uh, I knew that they had won. And I said, okay, third party is the way to go. What I think we're trying to do here is is to make systemic change. Yeah, we need the right people, but there's not any one person, any one charismatic personality that's going to bring about the change that we so desperately need in this country. Our biggest goals are election reform, knock down those barriers that have been built in the ballot access game by the state governments, fixing the dark money, getting good health care out there. We need more women, we need more minorities, we need more occupations and backgrounds. We don't have set paradigms and beliefs. We just want to solve problems. So we're open books. We're data sensitive. We want data. And we want to solve solutions that help the most people. Let's forget about where we disagree. Let's start with where do we agree? Let facts be facts and let truth be truth and afford people the opportunity to go and find the information they need. We require term limits of all of our candidates. Now, if you have more choices and competition, uh, just like any free market enterprise, competition is going to give you a better product. Focus on innovation and really learning on a local level. Free press and educating people in an unbiased way. Protecting and, and controlling the deficit. Respect and courtesy. Honesty through transparency. Openness and transparency. Transparency. I think that's incredibly important uh, in a number of areas, but especially in finances, so that voters can connect the dots. We want to leave this place in a better condition than we left it for the next generations, pure and simple. Not just my children, all our American kids. We need to educate every single individual in this country. So every individual has tools they need to succeed in life. Ultimately, that's what we're doing this for, what we can help the American people be. Not 
what we say they can be, but what they want to be, and we'll get our party to that point. We're supposed to help each other rise up, enlighten each other, and start by being civil and respecting other people's opinions. There's nobody left. We have to do it. There's right and there's wrong. <laughs> nobody owns it. You know, JFK, I believe, was quoted as saying something to the effect of, we don't need to look for the Republican answer or the Democratic answer. We need to look for the correct answer. And that's the types of conversations we're not having. As a people, are we doing what we should be doing? We're back. We're talking with Rudy Barnes, who, among other things, has written a book called Military Legitimacy, Might and Right in the New Millennium. So um, in this part of the podcast, Rudy, I'd, I'd like to focus a little bit uh, on the concepts that are brought out by your book. And I know it was published uh, 20 plus years ago, but I still find it highly relevant in today's uh, political environment. And to just sort of introduce people to the book, um, uh, the, the opening of your book, the opening of, of the introduction of your book says, and I quote, military legitimacy is about the balance between might and right. It is a relative concept differing in periods of war and peace. In wartime, survival takes precedence over the niceties of law. There could be no substitute for victory. In peacetime, the legitimacy of military operations is not measured by overwhelming force, but by public support, the vacillating unwritten product of the public will. Now, I hate to try and summarize your book uh, simply by extracting its first few sentences, but I really do find the implications of those sentences uh, very profound. That is, the military operations in war and peace really captures the struggle in this country that uh, that this country has seen since the days you wrote those sentences back in 1996. And if you recall, in, in 96, we, we'd been through Operation Desert Storm, which was, in many people's opinion, a war of choice, uh, arguably not fought over humanitarian principles, but for the want of oil. Uh, now, the second Gulf War, which occurred after you wrote the book, uh, which was waged again on Iran, was sold to the American people as a war of necessity after the attacks of 9-11. Now, I, I suppose in military terms, we were at relative peace prior to 9-11, but after the towers fell, it obviously was, uh, it, it became deceptively easy for you know, politicians to redirect our fears and anxieties to support going into a hot war. So, the, the debate as to whether or not we you know should have taken on that war is not over yet, and I think the final pages of history probably won't be complete for another 100 years or so. But here we are, you know, 17 years on, and the conflict in Iraq uh, continues to reverberate. And also recognize I'm focusing on Iraq at this moment, not Afghanistan. Iraq is right. a place where we, we try to win the hearts and minds of people. So uh, well, both places, really, uh, though, Dan. I, you know, I, I, was, I was a JAG officer, uh, got every general school, military lawyer, but I was also a special forces officer and special operations guy. I was privileged to wear a green beret as a lawyer, and that's kind of a rare thing. I was involved in some uh, special ops overseas, spent a good bit of time in, in the, uh, Southeast Asia, and was able to witness and work in that environment, uh, got a close-up view of how, how it works. And uh, special forces, I think, is to a large degree misunderstood as an instrument of our military force. We, we see these direct operations, the quick and dirty operations that uh, come in and take out uh, a particular operative, enemy operative, uh, uh, and, and they're gone. But most special forces operations are continuing operations in hostile cultural environments around the world. We have well over 30 different nations that our people are involved in advising and assisting indigenous forces to uh, trying to help their governments accomplish goals that are consistent with our strategic political objectives. That's the key. We have strategic political objectives. We're not fighting for the existence of the United States, but we're trying to help a government uh, become as an as an ally uh, to provide democracy, human rights for its people, uh, that sort of thing, which uh, should be one of our uh, strategic political objectives. To do that, to do that, forget the use of overwhelming force by mm -hmm. the United States. 
when we come into a country and, and when that's the means of our influencing people, generally it's the wrong kind of influence that turns the people against us. We should have learned that in Vietnam and certainly in Iraq, but we don't seem to learn these lessons of legitimacy like that. What we need to do is understand the culture that we're, we're in, and the Middle East is, is a culture that is quite different than ours here at home, and, and respect that culture mm-hmm. as we try to advise and assess folks in that. When it comes to these direct action operations, they're important, but that's not where I'm. That's not where my experience is. It's in the advising and assisting role where, where you have these special forces folks who spend lengthy periods of time in hostile cultural environments, and they are different type folks. They, are, they have to be diplomat warriors mm-hmm. to survive and to accomplish their mission, building support uh, among the folks that they're advising and assisting. Does that make sense to you? Well, yeah, that's, uh, I was, in fact, I was just um, uh, going to observe that it, uh, I remember when the, uh, the the invasion of Iraq took place uh, in the early 2000s, and uh, President uh, George W. Bush, he, he, at the time, I thought he exercised a bit of wisdom and foresight in directing the, the military to win the hearts and minds uh, in, the rake, in the wake of the invasion, but I do remember asking myself at the time whether the military is really equipped for such a mission, um, because it's uh, well, you know it, the hot war is what they specialize at. But uh, but this is more of a uh, an act of diplomacy or a subtle art of diplomacy that we're asking our military leaders to take on. Is is that did he get that right? Is that what they're doing? And is that has that been successful? Well, we've we've got to do both. I've as I say a JAG officer, I'm also a, a civil affairs officer, and was, again, privileged to wear a green beret. And in those areas, we're not, you might not say, mainstream military in the sense our focus is not on destroying things, killing people and destroying things at all, but is on dealing with a civilian population and a potentially hostile cultural environment, which is essential to uh, achieving our strategic political objectives that depend on public support in the operational area and also public support back home. Mm-hmm. Uh, we forget that. And when you rely on your combat forces uh, to do everything that needs to be done, we, we, we very often make the mistake of ignoring uh, these, these functions of the military that are critically important to building public support in an operational area. We've got to deal with those, and we have that capability, but it's a, you might call it a quiet capability. Yeah. Uh, how many diplomat warriors do you know, for instance, or have yeah. been in the news or gotten any publicity at all? I read about them from time to time because that's where I'm coming from, but uh, what you hear about are these, these uh, warriors, uh, and you hear from Trump especially, mm-hmm. really me the people he chooses to be his favorites who are brutal very often ignore the law of war and he thinks that's just great it's all about winning and who gives a you know what about the losers well there's some real similarities here between our faith and the military uh and if we can jump for a moment all the way through uh the chivalry of the medieval period uh, and military values, how they have evolved. Uh, yeah, that's a, I'm, I'm glad you're taking that point there, because that was, <clears throat> I was actually just going to ask about that, the, uh, the, the code of chivalry. Um, mm-hmm. This is a medieval concept, but uh, could you explain how that actually works through our military? Well, it, fortunately it doesn't work, not that code. The code of chivalry of the medieval era uh, was a product of its time. It was based on honor and courage among warriors. I mean, when you look back at uh, the events of that era, it's, it's very clear that there was nothing just uh, um, uh, merciful about chivalry. Uh, the, the, the knights of that period, the warriors, uh, respected honor and courage among each other, but rape and pillage 
was typical. Hmm. I mean, it, so today we have and we need to have a totally different set of military values, and you will find there, there are four or five values that I think are critical uh, to the military, and they are duty, loyalty, <clears throat> we are familiar with that, uh, and then courage, and selfless service. Selfless service is a key military value. And it should be obvious why, because a person who puts on that uniform is agreeing to, to serve a need or an objective greater than himself or herself. Uh, selfless service. And if that doesn't resonate with Christians, I don't know what would. But uh, those, those are the values that we need in our soldiers today. Now, the, for those combat folks out there who have a, a mission simple but very difficult and one that we need to be supporting of attacking and destroying an enemy force, that's a tough mission, but it's simple enough. But the idea of building common uh, public support in a hostile cultural environment is a totally different kind of uh, a mission, if you will, and it takes a different kind of soldier or officer, uh, one that can build confidence, one that has some cultural background in that area in which he or she is serving. Uh, we, we, we discount the importance of those people. And I, again, civil affairs, special forces, special ops, uh, and I don't want to discount the importance of combat forces, but they don't really relate so much to to this particular area. Yeah. Uh, and, and the folks who are in civil affairs and special ops, other than the direct direct action people, and they don't need to be diplomat warriors, they just need to be warriors who can go in there and shoot them up and get the hell out. Yeah. Uh, that's their job, and they're good at doing that. But those special forces and civil affairs folks that 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 go into these hostile cultural environments in Africa, the Middle East, Asia, around the world, they have to be something special, truly special. And I like to call them, as you see in my book, uh, diplomat warriors. Mm -hmm. But most people, when they when they hear that, they say, really, what you talking about, man? Hearts and minds and diplomat warriors. That's not what. The military is about we got to go out and blow them, blow the enemy away. Yeah, so it's just not yeah. That was that was my uh, my hesitation with you know when the campaign to um, to win hearts and minds. <clears throat> I just sort of wondered if that was really uh, if if our traditional military was up to snuff or up to the uh, up to the uh, task of doing that. And it sounds like it does if you have a warrior diplomat, but uh, as you point out, um, we don't really remember the warrior diplomats. We just remember the warriors. The only That's person right. that comes to my mind is <clears throat> perhaps uh, Jay Garner. I don't know if you remember him um, in the immediate aftermath of the Iraqi invasion. Wasn't he the first viceroy of Iraq? That uh, He was an ex-general, but he was, um, I believe, he was put in charge of... Um, putting Iraq back together. And um, my memory, and maybe maybe you have better memory about this than I do, but my memory at the time was that uh, he didn't last very long. Uh, one of the problems was he wanted to repatriate the, uh, the Iraqi army, um, mm -hmm. basically do what we did after World War II, is repatriate you know, the, the German army to, um, they now work for the Allied forces rather than just telling them to go home. So, um, as I recall, that, that idea didn't float very well with the politicians, and so Jay Garner was let go, and they, the rest is history. It was, I think they, yep. uh, at, at that point, they let go of most of the warriors, and, um, I mean, they, they, uh, they um, did not repatriate the Iraqi army, and just basically sent them home. And we had to reinvent the Iraqi army as a result, which did not, not work, and, and we're seeing now uh, in the political and military events in that region now, what you have is in that region, whether it's Iraq or, or Syria or even Egypt, you've got essentially tribes uh, of people. Uh, at least that's the way they see themselves, individuals. Part of tribes and clans, very often with militias, 
uh, that represent them. And this, the particular region stays in a state of turmoil because of that. And Soleimani, did I say his name right, Soleimani? Oh, yeah, General Soleimani, yeah. Very, was very adept at using those militias to achieve the goals of surrogates, to achieve Iranian political objectives. That's something he was able to do, something that we haven't been able to do. One man, I, I'm trying to remember the general that did it in Iraq, but he, he essentially did that. He focused on bringing together enough of the militias in Iraq to support our objectives and made it happen. Uh, when we do that, then we're... That we're doing a smart thing, something that we have to do. Mm-hmm. But uh, we don't often do that. We rely on overwhelming force, shock and awe. You're, yeah. Oh, we're going to teach them. They experience that, and they'll go along with whatever it is we want them to do. Well, it doesn't work that way. We should have learned it uh, in Vietnam and, and later in Iraq. But, hey, looks like we've got to relearn our painful lessons in legitimacy over and over again. Yeah, well, you... Um, um to that end, I mean, you point out in your book that the uh, the victors of war historically get to decide the terms of moral conduct of their military in retrospect. So, in other words, might makes right. But, um, you know, from our modern-day perspective, we don't judge historically these victors in very favorable terms because we have the luxury of imposing our, you know, our modern sense of morality on a historical figure. But the conundrum is that, you know, for today, you know, we don't get to judge what's happening today because history hasn't been written yet. So uh, in light of current events, such as the recent airstrike that killed uh, General Qasem Soleimani, um, are, are you afraid that the might makes right moral justification continues? <clears throat> no, this, what I've tried to say in my book is that while might might make right uh, in certain, at certain times in history, uh, especially when it comes to preserving the uh, existence of a particular nation, that has to take precedence over building public support for anything else. But uh, that my emphasis was on when might must be right mm-hmm. in order to succeed. Uh, that's quite different than might being right. It's might must be right, or the term I use, and in the military they use this term too, legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Very in, good. Yeah. A military operation is perceived by the public as being legitimate. It's going to be a political failure. That's bottom line of the whole thing. Uh, no matter how much force, no matter how successful a military operation, if it's not perceived as legitimate, it's not going to, to have the public support it needs to succeed. And that, that's and that explains Vietnam, Iraq to a large degree, Afghanistan likewise. Uh, we just we just can't seem to learn that lesson. Yeah. And that goes back to hearts and minds, as you mentioned. Uh, it's a term we used in Vietnam. Uh, it, it may seem a little trite, hearts and minds. I won't mention some stories that I've heard from others on on that to try to trivialize it, but that's mm-hmm. that's what it requires. Uh, if we're going to achieve strategic political objectives, mm-hmm. so it that's isn't. A, it, it, it's legitimacy. I think that that's a key word you hit upon there because the the might part of it is is the is the brutal part. This is you know this is right. we're going to we're going to wage war. We're going to um, make you know, beat you into submission. Whereas legitimacy is um, it's a long term solution, right? It's mm-hmm. when it's you're perceived as being now. legitimate. Yeah. Yep. You don't force people into doing things uh, with this concept of legitimacy. You hopefully convince them that it's in their best interest to do this or that, whatever our political objective, strategic political objective might be. But most people don't relate to that approach at all. Special ops, we do. That's what we're all about. But we're not the combat forces in the military. Yeah, I'm one of the few people who I've never actually shot at anybody, uh, but I wore that green beret with pride. Uh, I was an advisor to the commanders and, and dealt with these issues we've just been talking about uh, during my military career. Mm-hmm. So that's not the military that the public sees or really can appreciate very much. 
Yeah, and I think uh, uh, a lot of that really falls, the, the fault of that really falls upon the politicians that yep. um, they focus on a fairly one-dimensional view of the military. Um, and <clears throat> I think in hot war situations, that, that mindset is probably adequate, but it's in, in, the, in the long term. Uh, you have to have a multiple dimension view of the military to, um, to as you say, uh, bring legitimacy with them rather than just simply being great warriors. Yep, that, it, except in total war, and you say hot war, I, I use the term total war. Total war is when a country's existence is, is in play, uh, an existential reason for going to war. Uh, and World War II met that criteria. The uh, European countries that were uh, threatened by Hitler and overrun by Hitler, that was uh, a total war. And in that situation, it wasn't so important to emphasize legitimacy. In that war, the standard of legitimacy was abiding by the law of war, which was important. But in wars that we have had since then that are not uh, they're not wars over the existence of our nation is not really being threatened. Uh, we need to be focused on on building that public support as opposed to the use of overwhelming force to achieve our military objectives. Very well stated. Well, Rudy, I think we're coming up at the end of our time frame here. Um, I would just like to remind people that uh, Rudy has a website, and it's called Religion, Legitimacy, and Politics. And if you want to tune in to uh, Rudy... And I, might, who, I might add here, you mm-hmm. might also mention, I have a Facebook page on which I post uh, my weekly commentary as well, and it seems like folks are a little more comfortable responding uh, to issues on Facebook than they are on my... I get very little commentary on my uh, the yeah. website. Okay. But uh, we'd be happy to invite folks to, uh, to join my Facebook page uh, if they'd like to get these weekly commentaries or check it out on the uh, on the internet. Okay. Religion, legitimacy, and politics thing. But I appreciate you mentioning that, and have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Rudy. Uh, the um, I don't know what uh, I didn't look up your Facebook page. Or is there a specific? Um, um, URL address that people have to go to, or can they just it's look just for Rudy Barnes Facebook page? You know, I'm not a whiz at this all these social media <laughs> thing. How, how you do it? I I get uh, requests, friendship requests from time to time. I'm not sure how those folks find out about it. They'll tell you the truth. Uh, but the, the Facebook page is Rudy Barnes Jr. Facebook. Okay. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you can give me a little quick and dirty advice on that. I don't know how to, how to promote a Facebook page. I'm a babe in the woods one. when it comes to that, too. I've, I've been in technology my whole life, and I still have to come to my wife and ask her for help with Facebook because I, <laughs> I honestly yeah. don't understand it that well. Uh, it's um, kind of beyond me. Look, I've, I've done some interesting things in my life, but I don't really understand how this Internet works. <laughs> so well, to tell you the truth. But I've got that website. If if they have trouble getting through to my uh, Facebook page, I'll be happy to make them a friend if they do uh, request it. Uh, but it's the same thing. I have the same thing posted on the Facebook page as I do on my website. Okay. Just, uh, now, website addresses, I understand. That is www.religionlegitimacyandpolitics.com. All right. one word. No, right. no dashes or spaces or anything, and everything's spelled out. Okay, Rudy. So I think that uh, that pretty much wraps it up. Um, I really appreciate you coming by and talking with us this evening. Well, I was very pleased to have that opportunity, Dan. Thank you so very much. And keep an eye on Jim Rex for me. One of my favorites. <laughs> I will. Jim Rex is our uh, the, uh, the national chair of the Alliance Party, just for everybody's information. <clears throat> Good man. Good man. Wonderful. I'll leave it with you, Dan. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. Great. I appreciate it, Rudy. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. 
Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to help sponsor this podcast directly, get in touch with us through our website at theallianceparty.com. That's T-H-E-A-L-L-I-A-N-C-E-P-A-R-T-Y.com. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in, see what we're all about, and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe and be aware.